all, you know that sometimes it can be awfully difficult to be patient on the journey, right? Uh, my dear wife has been a road warrior this last week. Uh, she took the kids uh, three hours out to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to our former home to hang out with some friends there for a Christmas in July party on Wednesday. On Thursday, she drove the three hours back home with the kids um, so that she could get ready to leave on Friday with the kids, uh, four hours to my parents' house, uh, and come back on Saturday to see me so she could get ready to leave today, three and a half hours up to Wisconsin. (laughs) And um, I have great sympathy for her because she had all four of our children, the oldest of which is eight, uh, youngest of which is three with us, uh, with her, and uh, I was batching it most of the week. And uh, I'm sure that more than once, I don't know how many times in total, I wasn't there, but more than once, I'm sure she heard this question. Mom, are we there yet? (laughs) No, sweetheart. She's a much more patient person than I most of the time. And she she would say it this way. No, sweetheart, we still have a little further to go. Well, how much further? Well, a ways. <laughs> you know, we've left the driveway. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, well, we're not out of Peoria yet, so about two and a half more hours, you know, or about three more hours. Or, well, we're in Brownsburg now, so about another half hour to Grandma's. Um, and it's, it's hard to be patient sometimes when you're on a journey as a church, too. And we have been on a journey together for the last two months. We've been going through this series uh, called The Peacemaking Church based on a, a, a curriculum that's been provided to us by Peacemaker Ministries. And our objective in that, in being on that journey, is we are now at the, at the final day of these, this sermon series, uh, but we're not at the conclusion of our journey. Uh, we have made a lot of progress, though. We've learned some important things. We've learned some things like when you're in conflict with somebody, there are four G's you need to keep in mind. that You are to glorify God. You're to get the log out of your own eye, to gently restore your brother, and to go and be reconciled, right? We've learned seven A's of confession, things like admit specifically, acknowledge the hurt, accept the consequences. Uh, avoid if, but, and maybe. Those are always, that's always tough. You know, because when I apologize, I want to say this. I want to say things like, well, if I have offended you, then I'm really sorry, but <laughs> I was doing this, right? And we've learned to, to avoid doing that. And it's been a really good series, uh, especially those of you who have participated in Sunday school, I think have gotten more of the benefit of this. Uh, but it's been a really good series. It's been very stretching for me. Uh, I think um, it's been stretching for some of uh, our other leaders as well and those who have uh, been with us on the whole journey. But it's been exciting, and we're making progress. Um, we're, I'm making progress in my life. I know of a lot of other people I've heard reports from that they're making progress too, and we're growing in our ability to love one another truly and to resolve conflict biblically. But we're still on the journey. And I want to look 
at uh, continuing on that journey a little bit. Here from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is the book where Paul says the most about what the church is and what it is supposed to be. And we're going to look at part of Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 11 and go to the end of the chapter down to verse 22. All right? So hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit." Uh, you know, it's a bit of a stereotype about men, but I think it's a stereotype because it tends to be true that most of us, when we are lost, don't like to ask for directions, right? I got lost last week uh, with my daughter. We were out in a part of the state where I don't normally travel, and we missed a turn somewhere, and we drove up and down this road looking for a street that I was supposed to turn on, and... Um, and my daughter says, how much further is it, Dad? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not really sure where we are. And eventually we found our way. And we don't like to admit, though, that when we're lost, it would have saved time to pull over at a gas station and said, hey, uh, where is this road? But I didn't do that. I'm not in front of my daughter. I'm not going to do that, all right? Um, a man has to have some masculine pride after all, and uh, at least, you know, you never want your kids to know that you don't know what you're doing, even though you don't about half the time. Um, but the church is, in some sense, the community of the lost. I don't know if you know that or not, but Paul makes that point here in Ephesians 2, that we are the community of the lost. He says, he says look here, let me go back a page here. He says, you were, remember that you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. What does that mean? What that means is, is that based on our own native abilities, I don't think we have any members of the Jewish community here this morning, based on our own native endowments, our own birth, 
our own uh, will, our own ability to be moral and do what is right before God, that based on all of that, that we were hopelessly, completely, and totally separate from God. That we were without hope and without God in the world. We are the community of the lost. We are people who, uh, based on our own steam, can't get into a relationship with God. There's nothing about us which justifies us or which would in any way commend us as righteous before God. And if you and if you want to see that you want to see this clearly, you see the context is of Ephesians chapter two. What's, what's the most famous verses in Ephesians chapter two? Verses eight and nine, right? And what does eight and nine say? That it's by grace you have been saved, and not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, there's nothing that you have that you bring to your relationship with God that you can say, see, I'm a good person. I deserve to be in your family. No, you don't have anything. Uh, You are lost. You're a lost person. And the reason Paul brings this up, the reason he uh, wants to talk about all of the stuff, all of the bad part of their past, is because it throws into sharper relief what is the reality of their present and future. Every now and then you'll hear somebody say, remember the pit from which you were dug, right? Or you'll talk about... um, Sometimes when somebody becomes famous, they rise from obscurity and they become famous. Uh, It's always important for that person to have around them some people who knew them back when. Right? Uh, Presidents a lot of times get into trouble in their not in their first term, but in their second term, because in their first term they still have around them and surrounding them as advisors and as cabinet officers and friends all the people who were with them on the journey. And in their second term, all those people have said, you know, it's been fun, it's been real, it hadn't been real fun, I'm going to go do something else with my life. And then the only people that are left are the people who knew them when they were famous and powerful, and they get themselves into trouble. Because there's no one to call them to account. And Paul says, look here, you've got to remember where you came from. Remember what you were before you met Christ. And then he makes an important point. He's beginning in verse 12. Here's a, you, could, you can put a little CT there for contrast in verse 12. But, or verse 13 rather, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ is key. Why? Why is the blood of Christ so important? Why does Paul mention that? It's because our sins and our wrong acts and all of our violations of the law of God, both omission and commission, both the things that we do that are wrong as well as the things that we didn't do that were right, have to be covered. They separate us from a holy God. And as Hebrews reminds us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the blood of Christ is what cleanses us from sin. Because the law of God says very clearly, somebody has to die for sin. Somebody has to cry out forsaken by God 
either you or Jesus. Somebody has to, has to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. And Paul says, in your case, it's Jesus. That he cried out for you. He paid for your sin. How? With his blood. And you who were once far away have been brought near. And our peace with God was purchased by the blood of Christ. So that the church is also the community of the redeemed and the reconciled. Those who have to be redeemed is to be bought out of slavery to sin. And to be reconciled is to have been brought together into peace. You were formerly at war with God, but now you and God are at peace. And the peace treaty is made in the blood sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf and on my behalf. And Paul expands that idea down in verses 14 to 16. He says, look here. This is some of, the, by the way, the deepest, densest theology in this part of Ephesians. He says this here. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law of its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now, if you understand Jewish worship practice, you understand that in the temple there were uh, levels of access that you could have. And there was a court of the Gentiles that was the outer court that everybody could go into. And then within that, there was a court of women that the Israelite women could go into. And then what was called the court of Israel, where if you were an Israelite man, you could go into that. And that was where the, uh, the, the brass wash basin and the uh, altar of sacrifice was, was. And then within the court of Israel, there was the temple itself, the temple proper. And on, that was divided into two as well. And the outer part of, that in, of inside the temple was called the holy place. And inside it, it had the lampstand and the altar of incense and the table of the bread of the presence. And the priests would go in and out as they were serving, and they would eat the bread of the presence, and they would have light to see what they were doing with the lampstand. And the incense would burn and represent the prayers of the people of God going up. But as you got further and further into the temple, fewer and fewer people could have access. And then beyond the holy place was the most holy place, and there was a dividing curtain that separated the presence of God from even the priests. And on, into that place, only the high priest could go, and only once a year, and never without blood. And he would take the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat, representing the sins of himself in the blood of the bull, and the peoples with the blood of the goat, and he would pour them on top of the Ark of the Covenant to cover over the sins of the people. And all through these, this temple, there were walls dividing the people from one another and from the presence of God. Walls between Jew and Gentile. In fact, they've even found, as they've done excavations they, in Jerusalem, they have found some of these signs 
that decree that death is the penalty for any Gentile who crosses this space further into the temple. There, of course, at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, the, um, the Gospels tell us that the curtain that separated the, the holy place from the most holy place in the temple was ripped in half from top to bottom. How does that happen? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> you can rip it from bottom to top, maybe, if you're a human being, but ripped from top to bottom is 20 feet off the ground. I think God did that. Okay. And he was symbolizing to everybody in Israel that now everyone can have access to God because the final sacrifice has been made. And Jesus, in his death, Paul is saying, did more than just give everyone access to God. He made everyone the one people of God. So that now Jews and Gentiles have a share in the same covenant, the new covenant, where it's a blessing to be a Jew, but you don't have to be a Jew and you don't have to become a Jew in order to be part of God's covenant people. And Paul says that God's purpose was to end the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. And there was a lot of hostility. Um, Gentiles considered Jews to be atheists because they had no image that they would bow down to, bow down to of their God. And they didn't eat pork. And they had all kinds of other uh, culturally strange practices that they would engage in. And, of course, the Gentiles were considered repulsive to every good Orthodox Jew because they ate pig meat, and they didn't wash, and they bowed down to idols, and they engaged in immorality, and all these kinds of things that Jews knew were wrong. And there was kind of mutual condemnation societies that had formed of you're different from me, that different is not good, is bad. And the other view was the same. And Paul says that God's purpose was to knit together people who had been hostile to each other in their mutual love and mutual covering of their sin by Christ in his death on the cross. And by the way, just uh, to be clear, okay, Paul says... Look here, this has application for us too. Because, you know, we look at that and go, yeah, 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 okay, okay, fine, 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 very good. Because we look back on it 2,000 years later and don't realize that apart from the coming of Christ, we as Gentiles either would have had to become Jews or would have had to been shut out from the covenant promises that God gave. And a lot of the things that we enjoy, we, we kind of take for granted. But Paul says that his point, that part, part of the point of Christ's death is to reconcile me to my other fellow believers. To establish peace between people who had formerly been hostile to one another. He says he preached peace to you who were far away, in other words Gentiles, and peace to you who were near. And for Christians who get into conflict with one another... Paul wants us to remember that the blood of Christ is 
offered for the purpose of bringing peace between people. And notice how Paul in this section here grounds um, the peace that we can have with one another. In verse 18, he says, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Through him we both have access to the Father through one Spirit. And he starts that verse with the word for. And for is a word that's, that's it's a, grammatically it's what's called a causal. Uh, and what that means is, is, it'd be like Paul saying, because this is the reason. And he's saying, look here, because we have access to the Father through one Holy Spirit, we can be reconciled to each other. Uh, if your husband or wife is a believer like you are, then you can have peace. Why? Because you both have access to God through the Holy Spirit. And the same Holy Spirit is at work in her or in him that is at work in you. And that ought to give you tremendous hope that you can be reconciled one to another if you're in conflict. Because the same Holy Spirit gives you both access to the Father. Uh, If you are in conflict with a fellow believer at work, you both have access to the Father through the same Spirit, and His purpose for you is peace. If you're in conflict with your fellow believer, or with your pastor even, or with your elders at church, there's tremendous hope in this text that you can have peace, real peace, not just the cessation of hostilities, but real reconciliation, because you both have access to the Father through the one Spirit. And I think that's tremendously encouraging because it's, it's a reminder that we're all a part of the body of Christ, every one of us. Who is a believer in Jesus Christ, is part of the body of Christ, who has the indwelling Holy Spirit, who worships the same Father who is in heaven. We can have peace because part of Christ's purpose in coming was to establish peace between people who were hostile to each other. And our church, Paul says, is the dwelling place of God. And I want you to see this. This is, this is pretty cool here. You know, remember that here's what you were. You were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. In other words, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't be a Jew. Uh, foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope. And without God in the world. But look at verse 19. You are no longer foreigners and aliens. Fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Uh, In other words, you're a son or a daughter of the living God. Beyond that, you can't go, by the way. Because what's Jesus? He's the natural or the begotten son of God the Father, and you and I are the adopted sons and daughters, but we stand at the same level as Jesus in the kingdom of God. Beyond that, it, you can't get any higher than that. There's no, no place better to arrive at than that status. 
And beyond that, he says that it's built, that our status is, as members of God's household, we're built. That household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, the apostles, New Testament, the prophets, Old Testament, that, that the church is built up on the foundation of both Old Covenant and New Covenant truth that fulfilled what the Old Covenant promised that we look back on what the prophets looked forward to. And we experience new life in Christ just as the apostles taught as Jesus had taught to them. And that the foundation stone of that is uh, is the apostles and prophets, but that Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. In other words, the thing that the cornerstone of, a, of an ancient building was what they set in the ground first, and they made sure that it was perfectly square and perfectly true so that everything else would be defined by it. And we have a perfect cornerstone. There's no fault or blemish in him whatsoever. And everything that aligns with him is perfectly square and true and plumb. And we then, Paul says, he starts to mix his metaphors here. He says, in him the building, the whole building, not just a household, it's the house. The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And the the word he uses there for temple is really interesting. I don't normally get into too much technical stuff with reference to Greek, but this is a real interesting word. Because there are two words for temple in Greek. One is the word uh, heron, which means the temple complex or the temple structure. And then there's the word naos. And the word naos is the word that translates into Greek the Hebrew term for the holy of holies. You know, that spot where God's presence, the Shekinah glory, dwelt in the Old Testament where the Israelites, when they would look on the, on the tabernacle or on the temple, they would see this pillar of fire that would come down and rest in, over the Holy of Holies, symbolizing God's presence. And, he was, and God was referred to as, by the prophets as he who is enthroned above the cherubim. And Paul says, look at this, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, where is the, where is the dwelling place of God? In us. Not in the building. It's not in the geographical location. It's wherever the, the people of God are gathered the holiest spot on earth is your soul, in other words. Because it's as we are gathered together, your soul and mine and all of us who are gathered here, as we're gathered together and as we pursue Christ, we become the dwelling place of the living God. And we have better access, by the way, to God than even the priests had. You know, I always you know, used to think, man, it would be really cool to have been the high priest and to go in to the Holy of Holies 
and stand in the physical presence of the living God. But you know what? That's wrong. We have something far better. We have not the visible presence of God. We have the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. The same Spirit who spoke through the prophets, the same Spirit who carried along, as Peter says, the, the apostles as they wrote the Scriptures, the same Holy Spirit dwells in you and I and dwells in our church. As we are built up together on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and as we have peace with one another, we have the dwelling place of God himself. And we might have, you know, among us in our building, we might have some weak, crumbly, not quite square stones. Amen? All right. Amen. But what we do have is a perfect cornerstone and a perfect foundation of the apostles and prophets. And somehow, God, by his Holy Spirit, as he constructs the building out of us, keeps all of us square and plumb and true to the foundation that we're being built on and to the cornerstone which gives us the standard. And this building is growing. It's like a living building. It's becoming the temple of God, the place where God dwells by his Holy Spirit. And ultimately, it's not even about us. It's about God having a place where he dwells in the world and through which he ministers to all the people of the world. That we bring in more people who were formerly lost and we, we help them to become part of the community of the redeemed and the reconciled so that they too can be part of the dwelling place of the living God. And that sounds like a pretty tall order, and it's probably more than we think we can accomplish. And you know what? If you think that, you're right. It is more than we can accomplish. But thanks be to God, because it's not under our own steam that the dwelling place of God rises. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us and through us as we change and as we submit to his leading and his conviction, and as we confess our sins, as we make peace with each other, as we minister together under the power of the Holy Spirit, he does the building, and he does the work. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, Paul gives a benediction, which I'd like to give here, or Jim comes and leads us in communion. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray and let's take communion. Father, we do pray that you would do immeasurably.